Augmented brings in industrial conversations that matter. In episode 75 of the Augmented podcast, the topic is designing a worker-friendly industrial system. Our guest is Eric Mirandet, Head of Product and Ecosystem at Tulip. In this conversation, we talk about what designing and redesigning a worker-friendly industrial ecosystem might entail, how to build capabilities and not point solutions that simply fix existing use cases and instead empower operators and workers along the way. Augmented covers the future of manufacturing today. We interview thought leaders across the manufacturing industry on how they manage operational challenges. Our vision is a world where technology restores the agility of frontline workers. Augmented is a podcast for industrial leaders hosted by Futurist Trun Unheim, presented by Tulip, the frontline operations platform. Eric, I'm thrilled to have you here. Yeah, no, I appreciate you having me. I'm looking forward to the discussion. Eric, you and I know each other a little bit, and I sort of thought I knew you in the sense that people always think they know another person because there's familiarity and you've seen them over a certain period of time. But I wanted to introduce you by saying Eric was a high school athlete. He went to the U.S. Air Force Academy, and you have a business degree. You had a stint in venture capital, and now you work at Tulip, an industrial software startup. That's a pretty reasonable explanation of your life, or is it? <laughs> Well, there's a bit more to it than that. It was a somewhat non-linear path into well, VC for that matter, which was a you know relatively brief stint, about a year or so, and then uh, eventually into Tulip. But um, I went, as you said, to the Air Force Academy out of high school. This was about 2001 when I was getting started there. And then, you know, the country was headed toward war. I was a sophomore at the Air Force Academy at the time, you know, and I realized that I, uh, I had very little knowledge of who was out there, how the world worked, who these people were that you know we were going to war against at the time. And I wasn't in, in principle opposed to it necessarily, but it was more like, I think, an awareness of my ignorance at the time. I ended up anyway, this sort of led to me leaving the Air Force Academy for a leave of absence and moving to North Africa to work with a nonprofit organization where I was mostly in Morocco. And for about a year and a half, you know, I lived with an Arab family you know, and I, I worked a couple of different things. Medical assistance to West African refugees was kind of the first thing that I, I focused on. Spent the better part of a year getting you know, food and medication supplies to a group of migrants that were across the Sahara and trying to get into Europe. Uh, then there was a big earthquake in North Africa at the time. This is back in 2004. And I, I moved to the affected area to the uh, sort of the epicenter of this uh, earthquake. And you know, spent the remainder of my time there doing earthquake reconstruction efforts. Uh, you know, had a team of about 15 local nationals that I uh, was responsible for, you know, and then following my time with the nonprofit, before I was headed back to the Air Force Academy, I decided to take a trip. So I had been working with these West African uh, refugees for the better part of a year and a half, and their stories were just so compelling and so different than, you know, anything I had ever been exposed to before. So I decided to take a trip and I rode a dirt bike from Cape Town South Africa up to Cairo, Egypt. You wrote a book about it, which I just read, The Only Road North. It's a very compelling and tragic story. Why did you feel like you needed to write about this? Well, I guess to fast forward a, a bit, when I got to Egypt, I got caught up in a very uh, nasty suicide bombing uh, that ended up taking the life of my brother. And, you know, I never intended to write a book per se. Uh, it was more of, for me, just a means of catharsis and 
trying to make sense of some things that are not easy to make sense of. So I took to the pen, as I often do when trying to make sense of these things. And at the end of the day, you know, that was a story that I wanted to share. Uh, and so I ended up contracting with a publisher to have it published. So that's the book, The Only Road North. Yeah, I mean, you backpacked through Africa. You had many interesting experiences to meeting so many people along the way. And the first part of the story is sort of the dream for any young person, I guess, going out on their own and really discovering themselves in the face of the adversity of <laughs> there not really being a road. You say the only way north, but you were traversing places and dealing with border crossings and, and meeting a lot of interesting people along the way. I'm just curious, just a little bit about that story. When you think back about that time, is it possible for you to separate the end of that story from the beginning? In other words, what you set out thinking that you would learn, I'm imagining was something about other people are leading a very interesting and different life, and I now know all about it. And then suddenly, at the end of it, it turned out perhaps you're learning a lot more about uh, yourself. That's at least how I read your story. Yeah, sure. Yeah, you know, going into it, young, idealistic, you know, like most young men, you know, there's nothing in the world that can happen. You can do all things. Obviously, a, a you know, life-changing uh, set of experiences for many reasons, frankly. I suppose maybe I should fast forward a little bit to answer the question. I mean, obviously, dramatically impacted my worldview. I did go back to the Air Force Academy. I ended up taking a third year off to recover physically. That's when it was during that year. I ended up moving to Hawaii and I bought a one-way ticket with $500 to my name. And I ended up getting a job tending bar on the North Shore of Kauai, a place where I think, frankly, lots of people go to kind of get lost. And it was during that time that I wrote The Only Road North. And then I did go back to the Air Force Academy, as was my intention all along, though my focus in worldview had shifted dramatically, as you can imagine. Yeah. You know, I went to the Air Force Academy sort of thinking I would fly planes and, you know, wanted to be an astronaut. I majored in physics and astronautical engineering. I went back to the Air Force Academy and shifted my studies to political science and philosophy. And then instead of going the pilot route, I, I, I went into intelligence operations. Because another thing, at the time, this was 2005, 2006. So this was at the peak of the first surge in Iraq. And, um, you know, the other thing that occurred to me is, I, like, you know, I spoke Arabic. I had a lot of friends who spoke Arabic. And <laughs> these are not bad people. My wife is Lebanese and Muslim, right? And I think the thing that was important for me at that point in my life was you know, I wanted to be not just on the execution side of things where you're, you know, just fulfilling the orders, but I actually wanted to be a part of helping inform the apparatus that made these types of decisions. Hmm. So I, I went into intelligence operations. I focused in human intelligence operations specifically, and that's what I did for the next, you know, seven years. And that took me all over the world, <laughs> ironically, to no place that actually spoke Arabic, which is perhaps a representative irony, <laughs> frankly, of our, of our military machine. But I'm very proud of the work that I did. I do think I, you know, I had an opportunity to spend a lot of time on the ground getting to know these folks. And that's what I did for a chapter of my life. And then came a point in time where that was done and it was time to move on and do something else. And that's where I suppose the, uh, the story picks back up, me transitioning out of the military to MIT for grad school and into the business space. So then you entered the business space as a different person and in a somewhat different way than I guess you had imagined. Tell me a little bit about what made you join Tulip, and what is your understanding of what Tulip is building? 
you know, we talked about designing a worker-friendly industrial system in the prep for this call. Tell me a little bit about what you mean by that. And was that already something you fully understood it to be when you accepted the job? Yeah. Well, I mean, when I joined Tulip, I don't even know that it was a job to accept. It was a pretty early team and we didn't have, uh, you know, any of the things we have today in terms of product or funding or market traction or customers for that matter. I mean, it was pretty early stage. But the journey to Tulip is, is perhaps an interesting one. I got out of the military really with no earthly idea. You know, I had gotten relatively good at subverting foreign governments. No idea how in the world that it can be applied to a civilian context. No idea what the heck I was going to be doing. But I did a brief stint in BC, as I said, and I fell in love with the early stage space. You know, these entrepreneurs who were taking on hard problems and sort of operating with a small team against the odds amid an incredible degree of ambiguity, that felt very familiar to me and very energizing to me. I much prefer to be where the action is rather than on the sidelines. And so I decided to come to MIT for grad school uh, with the intention of finding a, a place in that space. That's where I first semester of grad school is when I met Natan and Ronnie. Tulip had just recently come out of lab, and that's what led to the initial connection there. Now, why Tulip? You know, there's many factors that influence it, but I think like one of the things that I found to be most compelling, if we talk about the, the problem that Tulip is, is, is solving, you know, at the end of the day, our goal, our vision, our mission uh, is to provide the people who run the world's frontline operations with a fundamentally better set of tools that allow them to do their job more effectively, full stop. Now, practically speaking, what does that mean? You know, we're talking about environments in which things are being made most typically. So the phone in your pocket, the shirt on your back, the computer through which we're talking now and the, the device through which whoever listens to this will be listening. All of this stuff is like made physically by people somewhere, right? And if you step foot into where these things are made, it is striking how underserved by technology these people are. And now there have been leaps and bounds with robotics and automation, you know, lots of advances there. But if you look at like the technology that actually serves the people that exist within, that run these operations, it's been largely untouched by technology in the last 20 to 30 years. It's as if the internet has not yet happened in these environments. And that disparity was just striking to me, first of all. Now, if we think about the context in which these problems are solved, you know, really what we're talking about now is manufacturing or more broadly frontline operations to include like lab environments and warehousing environments and things like that, things that aren't strictly defined as manufacturers, but a similar space. You know, manufacturing IT stacks are not something that's intrinsically interesting to me, or at least they weren't. I've actually gotten quite a bit more into it. But what was compelling to me is the sheer scope and scale of the problem, right? So if you think about the enormity of, of, of this, literally everything that's, that, that we rely on in our everyday life was built somewhere by someone. Collectively, these folks represent about 25% of the global labor force. There's about 650 million workers or so that are employed by these various operations. Uh, it accounts for north of 20% of global GDP. It's massive on a scale that almost boggles the mind. There was an element of intrinsic interest associated with the sheer scope and scale of the problem that Tulip endeavored to solve. But on a more profound level for me is also the conditions in which these folks work. You know, I grew up in Grand Rapids, Michigan. You know, my family, I've got, a, I come from a big Catholic family. I've got a lot of cousins. I couldn't tell you the number, but I would, I think it's fair to say 15 to 20% of my cousins are employed in manufacturing operations, right? System integrators, or they work on the floor. And these are not folks who run these, these factories. They're the folks who work in these factories. You know, they're in the unions. And when I came into sort of the ivory tower of academia, and I heard leaders of these industrial operations 
you know, talking about how do you increase efficiency and solve these problems, there's often talk of like, well, minimize the role of these folks, like the 650 million workers that I mentioned, it was, you know, we'd automate them if we could, but we can't. So we now we just have to like remove their ability to think and make decisions. You hear talk like this, and it's just fundamentally wrong, you know? And one of the things that was attractive to me about Tulip is from the very beginning, there was a, a respect for and a celebration of and an elevation of the people who are in the center of these operations as an imperative to improving these operations. I found that to be a worthy cause on a personal level. And we could talk a little bit about why did Tulip have that position? It's not, you know, the social end wasn't necessarily the driving imperative in the early days. It was more, it's like, while it is true, but it's also the fact that automation just fundamentally can't solve the problems that people can solve. You know, computers are very good at some things and people are very good at very different things. And if you look where the lab that Tulip came out of, was the fluid interfaces lab. And so this is all about removing the friction between the human and the computer and leveraging each for their respective strengths is kind of the driving force behind it. You know, and I think back to at the time, it was very much not in vogue to take this position in the early days of Tulip. Uh, this is about the same time, if you'll recall, when uh, Elon Musk was getting ready to ramp Model 3 production. And there was a comment he made that, that grabbed headlines, which was, um, he said, you know, I wanna walk up to the side of the factory and I want a big dial. And when I turn that dial, I want Model 3s to come out faster. The implication being this is a lights out facility, fully automated. Well, if you recall how that went, you know, fast forward a year into production hell is what the headlines described it. You know, Tesla was not doing well. Model 3 production was not going well. And the washout of that was we over-automated. We automated things that don't make sense, things that, that machines are not, like things like upholstery operations, and also the reality that like any of these operations, these manufacturing operations, they're complex systems, uh, which is to say, and specifically they're complex adaptive systems. Complex is to say that like no one actually knows what's happening across the entirety of the system at any given point in time. It's not something that can be understood. And there's all sorts of like nonlinear outcomes and you know little things happen that lead to unpredictable outcomes, right? It's a complex adaptive system in the sense that these systems are populated with agents that are constantly learning and changing their behavior in response to changing conditions around them. And when I say agents, I'm specifically referring to these frontline workers, the people in these operations. And that's a very interesting type of system. If you think about trying to remove all decision-making from that system, it leads to certain problems in many conditions. There are edge cases in which it can be done, but it doesn't describe the state of most of these systems. The way that you optimize these systems is by creating feedback loops and making the sharing of information available and easy. So allowing people to solve problems uh, very quickly. Tulip does this through self-serve tools that, that we make available in our product, but letting people solve their problem while also giving them access to the state of the system around them. Another example of a complex adaptive system that I think is appropriate is, uh, you know, traffic is a, is a pretty good one. There are many others, you know, biological systems and such, but traffic is kind of an interesting one. If you think about traffic, if I want to go from Boston to, you know, New York, it almost doesn't matter how good of a driver I am. What matters is, do I have Google Maps or Waze or whatever? And the point is like, it's not the skill of the individual as much as it is like the accessibility of the state of that system at any given point in time. Now, traffic is 
kind of an easy-ish problem to solve because at the end of the day, all agents are trying to go from point A to point B in the most expedient manner possible, right? Like everybody's really solving for the same problem. And so a common UI and a common set of capabilities in a single app can sufficiently solve that problem for all agents in that system. If you take that and you apply that to a manufacturing operation, the things that people are trying to do are much more highly varied, which means that a single application doesn't solve all of these problems. What you really need is the ability to specify the type of application to solve the specific problem that you're addressing. But everyone needs to be able to do this. The, the concept of making this ability available to all of the agents in the system and thereby creating sort of a, sh a shared awareness or transparency of the state of the system across all of these agents is um, how you would take this problem on. A lot of what you speak about is building a new system. I don't know what you would say, but if you look at kind of the history of industry and automation, it was a very, and arguably actually up until this day, has been a very centralized system. You shared with me an analogy from like the beginning of time, there were physical reasons why these systems couldn't be decentralized, right? So there are, there are certain structures where, you know, powering a factory was not simple, for example, right? Before electricity. So there was a physical dictate that I guess that's how the concept of a station originated, right? Because you, you kind of have to stay in your station, not because it's nice to, for everyone to have a station, it's because you need to drive power to that station. You need to drive power to whatever activity you're supposed to carry out. Now, that logic seems to have outlasted the initial problem. What you're talking about is actually a mind shift, right? Because not only is factory work becoming somewhat more physically decentralized you know, globally, but also individually and actually down to the specific thing that someone is doing at any given moment. Because that's, this is what you're talking about. These apps, they can change. Any one person can use many apps or can change what they're doing, but still coordinate with the overall system. Tell us a little bit about how complicated that is to do. Because to an uninitiated, you might just think, oh, all of this is software. It's like super easy. It's, it happens at the speed of light and there are no constraints. And we have come so far with algorithms, and this should be very easy to do. Something tells me that it hasn't been that easy. Yeah. You know, we just moved into the new office space here in the part of Boston called Assembly Row. So named because this is where they used to assemble Ford automobiles back in the 50s. You know, they've adopted the theme across this whole, this whole industrial park and retail space and, and such. And well, I was walking into one of the buildings one day, and there was this massive 20-foot tall, 10-foot wide cylinder you know, and I was like wondering what in the world is this thing, right? Like, what, where did this come from? And it turns out that that comes from an old manufacturing facility. This is back, as you said, when there was, um, you know, centralized power generation. So these were either like steam powered or sometimes water powered, you know, and you would take a central source of power, convert that to mechanical energy, and then distribute that mechanical energy to the various workstations across the whole of the facility using typically like a, a belt and shaft system. And this was, this particular piece of wood was a gear belt, you know, it would shift gears of the, of the system. What that means is that like if you think about how you build one of those facilities, you need to know what you're building, how to build it, like what parts are required, about how many that you will be building, and where every single physical station is going to be in this in this facility really before you lay the first brick, right? So these are like multiple years, tens of years when you conceive the system before you get your first product. And then they're very inflexible. In an unchanging world, no big deal. That's fine. You know, like we have a thing, it produces the product, all good. As you said, the thing that changed here fundamentally is uh, 
decentralized power generation. And now every CNC and every lathe and every thing that you use in a modern uh, manufacturing facility has its own onboard power source. You just plug it into the wall and you can do whatever you need to do and you can configure these environments in a much more flexible and reconfigurable way. And there's no going back. You couldn't imagine any manufacturer today saying, you know what, that central power generation idea was a good one. We should go back and we should do that again. Like it's, it's, there's no going back. You never would, you never could. And it strikes me that if you look at the way these same companies today build their IT stack, they build and instrument the systems that capture information and feed information to the people responsible for these operations, it's highly analogous. You build the system to solve for a very specific problem. This problem, you start by collecting the requirements and then saying, okay, let's spec the system. Okay, let's go ahead and agree on a vendor. Okay, let's go ahead and customize this monolithic software system with a rigid backend data model to meet the needs of this specific process that's been defined at this point 12 months earlier or so. Then we're going to actually implement it. We're going to roll it out. And once it's there, guess what? You're never changing it. It's too inflexible. It's too expensive. You're, you're never going to change it, which is you know, just not how software works anymore. And furthermore, it doesn't need to work that way anymore. Now, like, Not only is it at odds with the reality, like product A sells, product B doesn't. Who saw that coming? Or you run into, you know, and now we're talking about these nonlinear systems, right? You have a supply chain shortage. You know, let's say there's a global pandemic or a ship gets stuck in the Suez Canal or something like that. These are, you know, purely hypothetical, obviously, you know, but like these things happen and you're left without the ability to respond to them. And that is largely due to the IT decisions that are made years in advance. And there's no need for it anymore. And increasingly, we're seeing our customer base say, we're never going back. And there's an alternative. And obviously, Tulip is built with this as a sort of a foremost consideration. Yeah, and it is fascinating. So on this podcast, right, we call it augmented and arguably augmentation, right? You're building out something on top of a system, but the argument here is you're building it with the human as the main system, and then you're supporting that system by other types of technologies. It's actually a pretty drastical departure, I guess, from the way industry has been thinking not just in terms of infrastructure, but also uh, arguably in terms of management. So you're, you're out there uh, explaining the way our product works and obviously arguing that it matters, but, but more importantly, as customers are onboarding and starting to use it, I'm imagining that your role is a little bit also to sort of broaden their, their view and, and sort of help them along to try to envision how they could use these opportunities. Now, what are some of the other properties of kind of this new reality of not being physically tethered? So you, you talked about some design considerations that are, you know, opening up the layers. So self-serve is a principle. No code sure. is another one, right? So the reason it is self-serve is that a good part of the code has been modularized and, and is ready as like hot pluggable components. Overall, what are the features that matter in this, if we are going to endeavor to create this new world where the worker is more empowered and matters more. And the operator, I guess, who's organizing this type of work has a new set of tools. Tell us a little bit more about what these tools look like and, and what's gone mm -hmm. into building them. There's like two fundamental sets of considerations. The first is architecture, and then the second is form. If we talk about architecture, this thing called virtualization happened. Whereas previously, if you wanted to run software, you had to have physical hardware available to run that software. And what AWS and Azure 
have done, they've virtualized these capabilities, which means that anybody that can connect to the internet has the full capabilities of the best infrastructure systems in the world available to them without having to incur the overhead of maintaining these facilities. Now, how various companies decide and what goes in the cloud and what goes on-prem sort of varies, but overwhelmingly, it's a fundamental differentiator from you know what existed 10 years or, or so prior. And two, you are seeing overwhelmingly uh, migration to web-native, cloud-native software offerings. And the reason for this is, is that flexibility component, right? You can scale up or scale down as much as you need to without having to procure and maintain additional hardware to, to do it, right? Dramatically lowering the cost uh, and increasing the flexibility to the customer. So that's the architecture piece. Tulip, uh, you know, in case I haven't stated it explicitly, is cloud-native. So we, we run on these cloud services and we do have an edge component, which is a hardware that we can talk about perhaps in a little bit. So before we go to the form, I just had a question here because, you know, someone told me 95% really is the same tech everywhere, right? So you, you said you, you uh, put it in the form of cloud, but you could also sort of say like all, all internet or web type technologies, and then you add cloud and then now sort of edge and the constraints and opportunities of edge on these uh, devices and stuff. But then 5% or whatever percentage it is, is customized. It's almost mind-boggling to think about that even though so many of these components are arguably the same all across industry and use cases, whatever percentage that's not the same has to be so, I guess, customized in, in a very, very specific way. Why is that the case? And and mm -hmm. is that the case in a different way in sort of manufacturing and sort of more heavy industries than it is in any other endeavor? Yeah. So we've addressed the architecture. How do we make the capabilities available? Now we're shifting gears and talking about the capabilities themselves and how do we build exactly. tool and, and why do we build it in the way that we did? You know, the reality is that every shop floor is different. You know, it's like history. It's not, it doesn't repeat itself, but it sure rhymes. You know, it's, they're all, it's all, they're all a little bit different, but fundamentally they're doing similar things. These differences, it turns out, matter quite a bit. These differences are the reason that, you know, if we think about the process of implementing a rigid system, if they were all the same, it wouldn't matter. You know, you build the perfect system once and then you roll it out. But because they're all a little bit different, there's that need for customization and then the resulting inflexibility that makes the existing solutions ill-suited to solve this problem in a good way. It's the reason there's the need that there is today. So let's talk about the, the form for a sec. So Tulip, we've built a no-code manufacturing application platform. The key point here is that we build at the platform level. We don't build at the application level. What that means is that we've basically made the ability to build purpose-specific applications that solve very specific problems available to the people who are in these systems, the frontline users, the engineers, the supervisors, the directors. Now, it's most frequently the case that someone has solved this problem before using a very similar method. You know, think about all of your standard lean practices and, and, and such. In such a case, you don't have to start from scratch. We've got a library full of best practices that are available on the internet, you know, talking to the architecture. You can go to our website. You can find the one that works for your purposes. You can click a button and you can start with a solution that's anywhere from 50% to 90% done. And you can get started there. And that's going to solve a number of these problems. But there is enough variability that there is the need for customization and configuration, even within these applications that are mostly good to go, you know, which is why building at the platform layer and giving these frontline users the ability to configure and adapt and adjust 
And then as their processes evolve and as the nature of the problems they're solving also evolve, these solutions can evolve with them. So, you know, you can import these applications, get started there. You can configure them, solve the problem today. But then as your operation changes, you know, again, Tulip is a platform. You can, using this sort of Lego-like approach, you can continue to add on functionality or adjust functionality as required based on your sort of operational considerations. I wanted to ask you one question because I get this a lot when we start talking about augmentation, people immediately jump to augmented reality, which is a whole thing these days, right? Because of discussions around metaverse and other things and you know what, what it alludes to. But certainly for a while now, it has meant a device focus. So it's also a form factor focus, but it's focused on whatever happens to be the latest device that then brings, I guess, a digital rendering on top of your reality. Tulip seems to have de-emphasized whatever the endpoint device is. And I'm assuming Tulip supports many such devices and, and will support them to the extent that they become important, you know, on the shop floor or wherever a, a client wants to have it. But why is it that Tulip seems somewhat agnostic at the device level? You said Tulip focuses on the platform level and then brings apps so that operators can make their own apps and, and, and essentially make use of apps that others have made. But why isn't that last leg, the so the augmented devices, why isn't that a major focus? Many other companies focus a lot on these endpoint devices that sort of mm -hmm. arguably are the last mile for the worker to make those improvements. You know, Vince Lombardi said football is about blocking and tackling, right? There are a lot of capabilities out there and there's a lot of things you could do. Value is created when process is improved and inefficiencies are eliminated, right? There are cases in which an augmented reality may be a perfect platform to improve process, but it is not an end in of itself. Tulip's focus is on helping our customers find inefficiency in their process and then eliminate that inefficiency. Uh, we do run native on any device that you can connect to the internet. Basically, these could be smartphones, they could be tablets, they could be touchscreens, which constitute the majority of our deployed endpoints. But it could be a real wear headset or Vuzix or, you know, a wearable of, of some sort, you know, and we run on those as well. It's a web native te technology. You can put these applications on any device that can connect to the internet. The reason that we're device agnostic is because that's not the, the, the primary consideration. The primary consideration is on making sure that we solve problems related to process. And if those are the appropriate platforms to do that, we're all about it and you'll find them well supported. I can tell you that very few people are at that state today. You know, there's a lot of hype about it. There's not a whole lot of them that are being run in production. Exactly. You, I mean, at the end of the day, Tulip is about enabling production. So, so the, the moment, you know, tens of thousands of devices of whatever sort require that sort of support, my, my guess is Tulip would support it. But we do support it, to be clear. We, like you, if you come into the office today, you can see a demo. We do support it today. It's on our library. If you go to our library page, you can download these applications and get started with them. Uh, we just aren't emphasizing that. Right. But there seems to be a point why that's not being emphasized. And be, being device agnostic is a point that Tulip is, is making. And I, I'm just trying to dig a little deeper into that because I guess it's quite easy to tether yourself to a device because it becomes very tangible. Why don't we speak a little bit about the kinds of efficiencies that Tulip has enabled? I'm just curious to, to understand your take on like what are the main things that this kind of 
new type of system design for for an industry or or frontline operational tasks what are the kinds of things that can be improved by using such an architecture sure no everything we've been talking about today is like very abstract let's make it very concrete for a moment in a very tangible environment what does that look like and feel like and i'll, I'll give you an example of a you know one of our early customers one of the early engagements that i was and remain deeply involved with you know, we had a quality engineer at an apparel manufacturer. They were one of our early customers. He was responsible for the first wave of the implementation of Tulip. Tulip at the time, there was, you know, now there's relatively broad, you know, people know what it is and people have a, you know, they, they kind of know why there's a need for it. At the time, this wasn't the case. And so he, you know, he asked questions like, what is this thing and why do I need it? And how, how can I get advantage of it? And I said, well, like, tell me what you do day to day and what are the problems that you're solving? Oh, and it was with the caveat of like, these are manufacturing people. There's not a high tolerance for BS, right? So he's like, oh, and by the way, I don't have time for this, right? Uh, I said, well, what, like, what do you do? Like, how can we, how can we work on this? And he said, well, walk me through his process and said, every Friday, I spend the better part of a whole day entering data into Excel. I said, well, where does, like, what data are you? It's his quality defect data that he's entering into Excel. I said, well, where does the quality defect data come from? And he, well, he walk out on the shop floor and he says, it comes from these forms. I said, well, how many of these forms are there? And he's like, well, there's like 10 lines and there's like five stations at each line. And like every shift does one. And then I catch them on Friday. And this is batch manufacturing, by, by the way. This is apparel. They're making shoes. I was like, okay, so you spend every day, you collect all these forms and then you spend your Fridays entering this into an Excel. And then you get, at the end of that, you get a graph about what your defect rate was. And then you maybe get some information about what the root cause of this defect was, but it's like way too late in the, in the game to do anything about it because you just made 5,000 of that shoe and your defect rate was whatever, 7%. The damage has been done. And I, and I convinced, I said, give us one Friday, you know, it's like don't enter the data into Excel, give us that Friday. And what we did is we built a simple application and we, the end of that day, we replaced all of those quality defect forms with a simple application that was the exact same as the form. Instead of writing it on a piece of paper, you said, enter it into this form. And now the next Monday, when people came back in and started working, suddenly these forms didn't need to be collected because all of this data was available real time. The operators like it because it was easier for them. It was less they had to worry about. And it's also, you know, using the same technology that they have in their pockets. These are not dumb people. They know how to use computers, you know. Uh, maybe they're not formally trained engineers, but guess what? They all have smartphones in their pockets. So the operators like it. And then, you know, we start getting this information real time. And then the question becomes... Now you've got a Friday free, right? So what are we going to do with this Friday? Well, what we did is we built a second application that I said, like, of the root cause that we're seeing here being piped in through these applications, like, where does that happen in the value stream? He said, well, this root cause happens here, and that accounts for about 60% of it. This root cause happens there, that accounts for another 20% of it, so on and so forth. So what we did is we built a feedback loop into that line. So rather than waiting until the batch of 5,000 shoes or whatever was done, when the first defect made it to the quality inspection station, there was a real-time feedback loop that was introduced to the person that was actually responsible for that defect, and they were able to alter their behavior and prevent additional defects from being made. So that's like one very concrete example of how this set of capabilities can be used in the context of one of these systems to identify and eliminate inefficiencies and defects that are related to, to how process is being conducted. Eric, I, I only have a last question for you. You seem to be describing the emergence of a almost self-correcting system with the caveat that we've been talking about a human-centric self-correcting system. This is not some sort of automated situation where 
you're perfecting a machine. You are perfecting a system where human workers are involved and operators are perfecting it. And then you're using machines as part of that process. Where can this and where will it go? So there's Tulip, there's a f- few other players here adopting these kinds of approaches. As you're looking into the immediate future of manufacturing, the immediate future of all of frontline operations and practices that have these kinds of corrective behaviors that presumably can be improved. Where is all this leading us? And in what time frame? Well, I think first and foremost, you know, the message here is that people want to do a good job. And if you give them the tools, they'll do a good job, you know, and that's like sort of core to the philosophy of Tulip. And so really what Tulip is all about is making sure people have access to these tools. And again, we're respecting the individuals and celebrating the individuals who who run these operations, you know, fully empowering them to be their, their most effective is the goal. Now, where is this going, you know, and in what time frame? If you think back to um, the total addressable market for these capabilities, you know, anyone who made anything ever basically is what is what we're talking about. You know, we've seen a lot of success recently. You know, we've grown quite a bit year over year for each of the last several years. If you look at the number of customers we have today, you know, they measure in the several hundreds with uh, operations in, you know, something at like 18 countries at last count, thousands of users. This represents as a proportion of the total addressable market is infinitesimal. So there are many, many orders of magnitude more people that can benefit from these technologies than there are people who are currently benefiting from the technologies. And so much of what we're doing now is really oriented around making this accessible to those folks. Now, some of that is, you know, go to market commercial, but really what I'm referring to is building that scale into the product. So scalability of the product, you know, when we first built this tool, you know, you think about that engagement I had with the apparel manufacturer at the time, if you had a hundred people all using Tulip at the same time in that company, that was a really big uh, customer for us at the time. This is several, several years ago. Now today we have customers saying, Hey, we're going to be deploying a thousand plus stations over the next quarter, right? And we'll have hundreds of customers, of which this is true. And so there's the exponential scale component to it and making sure that the product from a UI perspective, from an organizational management perspective, which is to say, how do we just organize the sheer volume of content that this uh, requires and the data that's being consumed and making that the uh, analytics and the insights available to folks as the total amount of information that's being captured increases, how do we continue to make that available to folks? But then also from a governance and permissions perspective, how do we make sure that this can be consumed at that new level of scale? That's a really big product focus for us. Another product focus for us is, you know, we talk about, you've mentioned no code a couple of times, so have I. Really, we don't think about Tulip as necessarily having to be no code. Really what we think about Tulip as, and one of our first product principles is we want to build Tulip with low barriers, but high ceilings, which means anybody who wants to get in to Tulip, if you are comfortable with PowerPoint and you've spent some time with Excel, you can probably get started and be pretty effective building and deploying applications. Now that said, we also have software professionals that work within IT departments that are responsible for connecting Tulip to third-party systems or want the ability to customize certain components, there's a place for them as well. And, And so, you know, there's a lot of focus on making sure that we stay true to both of those principles, making it easy for the new user to get value out of Tulip quickly, but then also not limiting those power users who can do so much more. Well, I have to say the scope is astounding, but the degree of individual 
kind of empowerment that comes coupled with it, I guess, is the, it's that balance that is so amazing with what you're talking about, because you're talking about building a system that caters to individual, I guess, initiative, wherever they are, in whatever station they work, in whatever problem they are facing, but also one that can be governed and organized so that a large organization can trust it. And uh, that would seem to me to be in a live environment with many, many moving physical parts, some of which are dangerous because they're on the industry shop floor. It does seem to me now quite different from building any other software tool. Would you agree? The kinds of system constraints that you've been elaborating make it a very different proposition from just building an app. Yeah, yeah. We sometimes joke, you know, we're not building a dog walking app. It's a much trickier problem set. Yeah. And you know what, like last point there is, you know, to that end, we're empowering our, our users. And I'll tell you the emergent behaviors we see in the use cases that our customers take on with Tulip oftentimes far exceed things that we had ever imagined. You know, I would say there there is a level of creativity and ingenuity that is exhibited that we did not initially conceive when we would build a certain capability into the into the platform. But to see what people do with these capabilities as they apply it to their reality far exceeds anything that we would be able to sort of centrally plan or create for them, right? My point is like, if the burden was on us to create the end state application, we would be missing out on so much creativity that we see uh, across our customer base. Wow, Eric, thanks you so much for sharing your journey into Tulip and the journey that is awaiting people who are, I guess, brave enough to go on these journeys that are now about to happen across frontline operations because it's, it's a landscape that is rapidly going to evolve, it seems like. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's really my pleasure, Tron. Thanks for having me. You have just listened to episode 75 of the Augmented Podcast with host Trond Arne Unheim. The topic was designing a worker-friendly industrial system, and our guest was Eric Mirandet, head of product and ecosystem at Tulip. In this conversation, we talked about redesigning industrial systems uh, to empower operators and workers along the way. And my takeaway that is that it is unusual to hear the case for manufacturing efficiency coupled with worker empowerment and then expressed so clearly as a systems dynamics problem that needs to have an overall fix instead of just attacking bottlenecks. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at augmentedpodcast.co or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you liked this episode, you might also like episode 73 on the challenge of frontline operations. Augmented industrial conversations that matter.